Good morning. I'm Francis Cherry. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I am a member of the Port Salerno group in Stewart, Florida. And I'm grateful to be sober this morning. Um, my sobriety date is March 20th, 1978. I have been to hundreds and hundreds of AA meetings. I don't know how many. Some people know how many meetings they've been to. Uh, they know how many minutes and hours and all the rest. But I've been to enough to uh, tell you that uh, I am sober today as a result of everything that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, the steps, the traditions, the sponsorship, the basics, the big book, the home group. I am a uh, traditionalist. I suppose uh, in some circles that would make me a conservative. I don't know. Maybe that's uh, out of the uh, out of the loop. But anyway, um, Kathy made reference to my sorrow. I did come very close to canceling this weekend because I lost my husband on March 2nd. He became ill right after Christmas and went down very fast. On February the 2nd, we had been married 52 years. Uh, February 2nd is uh, Groundhog Day, as I know a lot of you probably know that. Uh, <laughs> But we had our usual Groundhog uh, celebration, you know, even though he was ill. And um, even though I knew that he was going down, and the doctors all told me that he was going down, you know, uh, our ability to accept the inevitable is, uh, is really tough. And uh, I vacillated between anger, um, I only screamed at a couple of doctors, which uh, is really not in my, uh, it's not really in my personality to do that. But sometimes desperation uh, causes us to do strange things. I had at least two members of Alcoholics Anonymous with me all the time at the hospital, and uh, my children were not able to get to my side until uh, several days, or until the day after he actually passed away. I was able to bring him home, and uh, he was very, very happy to be home. And with his last breath, he said to me, I love you, honey. And I don't know how, how anything could be any more wonderful than that. I have lost him. But you know what? I haven't, because he is at my side as we speak. And if you had known Mr. Bell, you would have loved him just like I loved him and love him to today. And when I heard Ar Ar Arbutus, am I saying that right, yesterday, we were talking about her bill, it, uh, you know, it brought tears to my eyes, because that kind of love is... Uh, it's not easy to come by in today's world. So uh, if you've got it, hang on to it, nurture it, and don't take it uh, for granted because uh, in the twinkling of an eye, it can be gone from you. But in the meantime, I will tell you that uh, I met Mr. Bill when I was 19. I was already a full-blown alcoholic. I started drinking as early as I could, and I drank as long as I could. If I could have taken one more drink of alcohol, I would have never been, I would have never showed up at an AA meeting. But I could not take one more drink. He did not know what he was getting into. Uh, none of us really know what, what we're getting into a lot of times. He was um, introduced to me by a college friend who um, 
was really trying to dump him off on somebody, I think, because you see, he liked horses and he drove a pickup truck and he wanted to go to horse auctions. And we were living in Los Angeles at the time. I was going to school out there. And, uh, you know, when she said horses and pickup truck, boy, I woke up because I had just moved to Los Angeles from Texas. I was born and raised in Texas. Um, Arbutus made some references to Texans yesterday, and I'll have to tell you it's all true, only more so. And um, I grew up loving the country western scene. I love the saloons, and this is not a saloon. <laughs> this is really a salon. I love the saloons, I love the smoke, I love the music, I love the dancing, I love the cowboys, and I loved all the stuff that went with that. It had not been obvious uh, from an early age that that would be uh, what I would fall into because uh, I grew up in a very uh, proper family, a good strong family in San Antonio. and. Um, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic. You know, you hear sometimes people at these podiums say, well, you know, I was born an alcoholic. Well, I, I, really, I really don't know. I can't really testify to that because uh, I think to be an alcoholic, you have to drink some alcohol. And uh, it was a while <laughs> before I had a chance to do that. But I will tell you, at age five, I could have used a martini. At age five, when my mother dropped me off at Mrs. Thompson's kindergarten, I wasn't particularly sad that she was leaving me there because I had already decided that she was some sort of a pain in the neck. Um, she had left me there, and uh, I recall the feeling of insecurity, of fear, and of not knowing what to do at age five. And that feeling was to stay with me for the rest of my life. It's still with me today on occasion. I hate to put some of you uh, in a state of dismay, but there's a possibility that I may be there this morning. Uh, I think that I know what I'm doing. But that feeling of not knowing what to do was, was an overwhelming thing for me. And it pursued me through my school years until I learned to act as if. And I never had heard it described that way until I came to AA. I learned to act as if I knew what I was doing. And I could convince you that I knew what I was doing. I could convince my teachers, my parents. But inside of myself, I did not know what I was doing. And it became a real, a real kind of a treacherous path. I did well in school. I had lots and lots of friends. Somebody made uh, reference last night to uh, water seeking its own level. I can really identify with that because by the time I was a teenager, I was beginning to seek my own level. And the first uh, part of that was a cowboy. He was about 6'4" and weighed about 120 pounds. <laughs> My mother uh, spared no words uh, in telling me that he was the ugliest thing that she had ever seen and that she certainly didn't want me hanging around with him and of course that made him all the more appealing. And the, the guy was fabulous. I mean, he had a cooler in the back of his pickup truck that held two cases of Lone Star beer. And he liked to go to rodeos. And all of a sudden, I liked to go to rodeos. And I liked to drink beer. And I found out when I drank beer that I knew what to do. I, uh, I, I didn't have any problem whatsoever. And as the years went along, I became a, a social drinker. I became a so not only a social beer drinker, I became a social everything drinker. Uh, I drank whatever you drank. I went where you went. Uh, I was very sociable. 
and uh, we went to uh, to all all extents and all all measures to uh, enjoy that scene. But I had to live already the double life because when I would come home and I would get dressed for school and go off to do the things that we have to do, um, somehow I knew that I was setting that aside. I was setting aside my uh, my cowgirl life. I still love that music. I love it today. And I have been to some country western joints in South Florida that are not exactly five stars. But I can do that today. I can go there and I can enjoy the music and I can enjoy the dancing and and I don't have to drink beer anymore. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you. So Mr. Bill and I had our first date and we went to a horse auction and uh, I knew that we were going to go to a saloon afterwards. How is it that we intuitively know? <laughs> we intuitively know that something is coming later, that we can endure a horse auction or, a, or whatever, a wedding, a graduation. A, we can endure as long as we know there's going to be a party. So we went to the saloon after the horse auction, and I drank 11 bottles of beer. He drank three bottles of Orange Crush. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Orange Crush, but it's very nasty. It's uh, it's a nasty substance, and, uh, you know, it took him all evening to drink uh, three bottles of Orange Crush. And uh, it didn't take me long at all to drink 11 bottles of beer. And I thought nothing of it at the time. Many, many years later, when I was in Alcoholics Anonymous, I asked him, what he thought about that. Now, I was always wanting, when I was first sober, wanting to figure out what you were thinking. Figure out so that I can really know maybe something more about myself. So I asked him, I said, Bill, what did you think about that? He said, I just thought you liked beer. I mean, he was so Al-Anon, even before, <laughs> even before he met Al-Anon. That's the way he was. And we got married because uh, it was time. Uh, I had to get married, not for the reasons that you're thinking, but uh, I was 22 years old, and in, in my generation, if you weren't married by the time you were 22, you know, you were going to be toast. And so uh, he said, well, do you want to get married? And I said, well, I guess so. So we got married, and my mother, you know, did all the appropriate things, and we had a nice wedding, and by the time I was 30, I'd had three children. That was another part of the, of the uh, formula. Have, have your children before you're 30. What an old idea. <laughs> and uh, so we had the appropriate number of children, and I had uh, finished college, had started teaching school, and had started drinking on a daily basis. So uh, this morning I stand be before you as your token alcoholic teenager, um, young married woman, your token uh, alcoholic school teacher, your token uh, housewife, mother, and it goes on and on from there because we all know that this is a progressive disease and it never, it never stands still. It may... Uh, ease off for a bit now and then, but not for long. My husband was, uh, had gone back into the Army. He was a career uh, military man, and uh, he did very well. He continued to get promoted, and uh, the houses got nicer, the cars got better, and, and I got worse. And when I was 35 years old, I think I crossed the line into alcoholism because it was at that time that I started thinking about my drinking. Until that point, I don't think I'd ever given any thought to my drinking. And I don't think that people that don't have a drinking problem ever think about their drinking. I mean, I don't think that, that, that the average person gets up every morning wondering about this. You know, where they're going to go, who they're going to be with, will they do this or that, or will there be enough? But when I was 35... I remember it distinctly. 
I was sitting in my kitchen with my three children. My husband was away at a war, probably. I kind of lost track of the, of the wars and the riots. He was involved in some riots, too. I mean, besides the one that was going on in our house. Uh, <laughs> and I was, uh, had poured myself an iced tea glass full of Canadian Club. It had a couple of little ice cubes floating in it. And I had fed my children. He was away, as I say. And uh, it suddenly occurred to me that there was something very strange about this picture. Because I'm drinking whiskey uh, just about as fast as I could. And the children are eating one of their alcoholic mother menu dinners. Now, those of you that have raised children, there's a few of you here that have. There may be a few alcoholic mothers here. Um, I have a recipe book for alcoholic mothers. It, uh, it's very short. <laughs> it only has four recipes in it. Hot dogs. Bananas, eggs, and peanut butter. And, of course, the bread and milk are just taken for granted. So I had given them one of their alcoholic mother menu dinners. And I, I tell you for sure, I hope that there's no nutritionist here this morning because you can raise very, very healthy, very intelligent children on those four food groups. Because I did. Now, when he would come home, you know, we would occasionally have, you know, he'd come home and I'd act as if. You know, we'd have the pot roast and the, the potatoes and the gravy and all that other stuff. But as soon as he left again, we were back to the four food groups. I had my first spiritual awakening uh, dealing with a hot dog. Um... One evening, uh, the, you know, the hot dogs had come up at the top of the list, and I looked down at the wrapper, and it said, fully cooked. <laughs> and I am like, wow. <laughs> this is incredible. I eliminated one whole step. You know, I had given up he, uh, warming the buns anyway, you know. And you know what? The children didn't even care. They, they didn't care. They, they just wanted to get back outside to play anyhow, so. They had cold hot dogs from that moment forward. I did manage to get them out of the freezer, usually. Time marched along, and uh, I got worse, never better. I remember one time my eight-year-old came in the living room and she came in from school. I was sitting at the piano. I had uh, lit the candelabra. Why we even had a candelabra, I do not know. Both sides of the piano, six or eight candles. I had the bottle of sherry under the piano bench and my glass. And I was playing the piano Probably MacArthur Park. <laughs> oh, that's a real good one for crying. And I was crying and playing the piano and singing, and uh, she came in and she said, Mom, what are you doing? And I said, I'm playing the piano. She said, what's that big green bottle doing under the piano bench? And I said, because it's too far to the kitchen. <laughs> that's why it's under the piano bench. Doesn't that make sense? But I was going through my sherry, my sherry period. I went through a dry sherry period. Uh, uh, you know, you learn that vodka martinis, um, especially when you're slugging them down the way I did, when you, especially if you were out in a public place or if you were at the officers' club at some, God forbid, for, uh, you know, function. Um, I thought it would be more ladylike if I drank dry sherry, so I had switched to dry sherry, which I was drinking by the big green bottleful. 
the, um, the thing about drinking dry sherry, and I'm sure that some of you know this, it's very important when you're out in public to know where the bathrooms are. Because, um, I don't know, at least for me, it had, a, it had an effect on me that way. My driving was not, uh, was not particularly outrageous. Um, I never received a, a, a traffic ticket. I never received a DUI. I was arrested on the side of the road once uh, because I began arguing with the officer because uh, he was giving a ticket to my friend who was driving the car. I was not driving the car. And I had decided to get out of the car and straighten things out. So I got sort of like a drunken, disorderly, I, I don't remember what it was, but um, I never lost my driver's license, and I never spent any time in jail. And those are all yets. If you're new here, you might think about the yets that are waiting for you if you continue to pursue this. And there's a lot of yets left for me. My driving uh, mishaps were basically when I was in reverse. I had a tough time with the reverse gear on the car. Uh, I had my first accident in a drive-through at the bank. Um, I put the car in reverse instead of drive. And I hit the accelerator and crashed into the car behind me. And uh, I was always hitting the accelerator. I, I never just touched the accelerator. I was on the mad rush to nowhere. My whole life was a mad rush to nowhere. I was always in a hurry. I have things to do, get out of my way. I have to get this done, and I have to get it done now. So uh, when I got home, you know, uh, my husband said, well, what happened to the back of the car? And I said, well, I don't know. And that was the first time that I had used that phrase. And if you're here today and you've never used that phrase, I highly recommend it because it'll shut down any conversation with anybody, anywhere, anytime. If you're in a difficult conversation, you just throw that one out. And uh, it shuts everything down. I backed up in a parking lot about 45 miles an hour and hit a tree and buckled in the bumper and I got home and he said, what happened? And I said, I don't know. I was in this parking lot and something happened. He says, you're not carrying that Ronald McDonald uh, cup around with you, are you? Now, see, he knew that my Ronald McDonald cup had my booze in it. But I like that because who's going to take on a nice sophisticated suburban lady that's drinking out of a Ronald McDonald cup. So I said, I don't know. But the worst thing of all my backing up experiences, uh, I backed out of the garage with the door down. <laughs> now, I was in a hurry. <laughs> I needed to get going. And the door didn't didn't come out too well. They neither did the back end of the car. And I, I blamed it on the, the guy that came to mow our lawn. I don't know what I thought about that, but I never was, never, ever took responsibility for anything that ever happened, ever. I was very rigid in the way I ran my family. So who could, who could possibly say that I wasn't a, a, a perfect uh, little suburban military housewife. We changed the sheets on Monday. If you were sick in bed that day, too bad, get up, we're changing the sheets. I did my grocery shopping on Thursdays. I got my hair done on Thursdays and I got the car washed on Thursdays. And one fatal Thursday I had gotten the groceries and I'd gotten my hair done and decided to get the car washed, which was a really serious mistake. And some of you women remember the beehive hairdo? <laughs> I had this beehive bouffant, you know, it has like five pounds of hairspray on it. And I went to the car wash, 
And in those years, you just drop the money in the little thing, and it says, do not touch the wheel. Well, you know, you don't take, you don't tell alcoholics of my type not to do what you know is helpful. I mean, it's helpful. I mean, I have to help. So I started into the car wash uh, little garage thingy, and uh, I touched the wheel, and I drove off in the little slot in the middle of the, of the road there where the water runs. So I'm trapped in the car with 200 degree water pounding on the car, and the car is stuck and it won't come out, and my hair is, dro is dropping. My hair is dropping because I'm in this steam room. And I got, uh, you know, I never really did seem to care. Uh, it, it, I never seemed to, it never seemed to really bother me particularly. And the manager finally got the thing shut off, and then he realized that I wasn't going to be able to get the car out, so he called a tow truck. The tow truck came, pulled me out, and by that time, a sheriff's car was there. And the sheriff said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I went home with a very, very clean car and a very, very droopy hairdo. And when he asked me where I'd been, I said, I've been to the hairdresser. And he said, well, what happened? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I guess she's losing her touch. She's losing her touch. In 1974, uh, my husband had retired from the Army, and we were going to sail away on a sailboat, which was uh, his life's dream. We sold out everything that we had, houses, cars, furniture, clothes, everything, and we moved on a big sailboat up in Canada. We went to Whitby, Ontario, and we bought this really gorgeous ocean-going sailboat. And I knew that my problems were going to be over because I was going to get away from that life in suburbia, get away from the, all those responsibilities of, you know, trying to be... Uh, the commander's wife and, and act, you know, like we're supposed to act and all that stuff. I was going to get away from all that. It was going to be wonderful. Two of our, our children were already grown and in college, and we took the 14-year-old with us. <clears throat> well, do I have to tell you that it got worse? <laughs> I don't think so. We sailed for three years. We sailed down uh, the intercoastal we sailed all over the Bahamas, the Virgin Islands, and in and out of marinas all up and down the East Coast. I was beginning to experience the, uh, the syndrome of getting lost. I would go ashore, perhaps to do the laundry, and then I would forget where, where we were. Um, it's, it's it, you know, really and truly, I know that most of you will not appreciate this. Maybe some of you will. But laundromats are really a hell on earth for alcoholic women. Because they've got 200 washing machines, 200 dryers, and I never knew where the clothes were. <laughs> and sometimes there would be a grocery store next to the laundromat, and so I would go get a few groceries while the clothes were washing, and then I was really in trouble. Get back to the boat, sometimes I would have the clothes, sometimes I wouldn't, sometimes I would have the groceries, sometimes I wouldn't. He'd say, where are the groceries? I'd say, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, so by the time we got down into the Virgin Islands, it had been, it, it had become pretty clear to him that I was losing my ability to be the first mate on this boat. <laughs> Because I just didn't care anymore. You know, if you, if you start drinking rum the way I was drinking rum, uh, you, you really don't care. I mean, I could have cared less. We'd be making a crossing, an ocean crossing in, uh, or something, and uh, he'd come up. It would be my turn at the wheel. He'd come up and say, where are we? And guess what I'd say? <laughs> I haven't got a clue. My 14-year-old, uh, bless his heart, uh, was, was enrolled in a, in a correspondence school out of Baltimore, Maryland. He was doing very well. And uh, fortunately, being the kind of a kid he is, he did, he did fine without, without any parental supervision. 
I needed a lot of supervision from him because sometimes I'd come back to the boat with the groceries in a dinghy. The good news is that the dinghies never had reverse gear. <laughs> but if I came back to the boat with, uh, with the groceries, they were always in paper bags, and I had a very hard time getting them up into the boat and frequently would drop the bag in the water. At which point I would knock on the side of the boat and Carl would come forth with his flippers and his mask <laughs> because he knew what was going to happen <laughs> next. He would be diving for the groceries. <laughs> you know, there goes the cottage cheese, there goes the eggs. Most of the other children in these various anchorages that were on these other boats, you know, they were diving for conch and lobster <laughs> and hidden treasure. You know, Carl was diving for the groceries. And he'd say, Mom, he says, why don't you knock on the boat before you try to put the bag in the boat? And then I could come out before the bag was in the water. But I could never put that together because I always knew what I was doing. You know, don't try to tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing. Things got worse. And um, Mr. Bill decided that, well, we're not going to make this cruise back to California through the canal. We're going back to Florida because I, uh, th this is not working out. I would get lost in these little towns in the Bahamas or in the Virgin Islands. I'd get off the boat and go wandering, wandering around. It's a paradise for people who also have a prescription drug problem. Um, it, it's just, it's just an uncanny. I mean, you can walk into any doctor's office, any drugstore. There isn't any really drugstores. But you walk in and say, you know, I'd like uh, 500 of those. The ones in the yellow jar there would be fine. Oh, okay. So for a penny apiece, you know, I would get my my Valium or whatever I was taking every morning to make me feel better. I had a serious prescription drug problem, which I'm not going to go into because it's all the fault of one dentist. It was his fault. He started the whole thing. And uh, I'm going to give him credit for it. I was 28 years old. I was in the dentist chair, and he said, you know, uh, Francis, he said, I can give you something so that you will never have to experience this anxiety again. And I thought, wow. I didn't know that he meant the anxiety that I was experiencing in the dentist chair. I thought that he just meant anxiety in general. And that was the beginning of that little, that little tale. So we came back to Florida, and um, I started making promises. You know how we make promises? You know, I won't be doing this again, I promise. He'd say, why don't you take just one drink? Did any of you ever have anybody ask you that question? Well, why don't you just take one drink? And then he began laying down some rules. If we leave the boat, you can have one drink on the boat, you can have one drink at the restaurant, period. Well, really. I mean, what kind of a deal is that? I mean, I couldn't do that. I had a doctor uh, about that time that told me that I should limit my drinking to one drink a day. My mind showed me a, a five-gallon bucket with a straw in it. <laughs> That's what one drink a day looks like to me. There was not enough liquor. There was not enough beer, not enough booze in Martin County, Florida to fill me up. But I didn't know that. All I knew was that it was the first drink that did it. And I knew that early on. I knew that a long time before I ever came to an AA meeting. I knew that I could be okay, reasonably okay, and take one drink. And that was all. That was it. Off and running. So four months before uh, I finally came to a meeting, I had told him I was going to quit drinking. And he said, well, you better call that outfit, I think it's called Alcoholics Anonymous, you better call them up and get some help. And I said, oh, no, I can do this by myself. So I went to the, to the 
uh, telephone on the dock at the marina and found out the time for the meeting. And it was at 8.30 in the evening. And at that time, we only had evening meetings. Now we have zillions of meetings, you know, all day long, every day. He told me it was at 8.30 at night, and I thought to myself, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. I mean, no one goes anywhere at 8.30 at night. So the months went past, and I began sneaking drinking, which I hadn't done before. That was a yet that started happening. Um, on board other people's boats when they weren't there, into their liquor cabinet, into my liquor cabinet in the middle of the night. It's very, very hard on a boat to be quiet. <laughs> to actually get a bottle out of a cupboard and take the cap off of it and have a swig in the middle of the night and be quiet. It's very, very hard. But the last night that I drank, I had taking the top off of a 7-Up can. Now, this shows you how, how insane, the level of the insanity. I was going to drink half the 7-Up and then fill the rest of it up with vodka. Now, I don't know about you, but pouring vodka into that little hole in the top of the 7-Up can is really, really... The thought of pouring it into a glass never occurred to me because, see, I was caught up in that denial. If it's in a 7-Up can, no one will ever know. And so um, I was just going to have one little ounce or two just to ease my nerves. And by the morning, I had finished off a fifth of vodka. And that was the last night I drank. And the next day, I told him to go to Alcoholics Anonymous if he would help me. He did. I was so sick, I cannot just hope to God I never, ever get again put on my check cash. I've had to intervene in the last few years in some situations where somebody has jumped on somebody that came into one of our rooms. I, I, I feel very, very strongly about that. I think that we need to be welcoming. We need to be inclusive and not exclusive. And if the person isn't supposed to be there, the person won't be there for very long. But they welcomed us, and, and uh, you know, we got the usual line, keep coming back. And uh, I got a sponsor within a few days, got a meeting list, got lots and lots of phone numbers, and that was my beginning. I didn't go to a detox. I did not go to a treatment facility. I probably should have. I got sober on the Hope Sound Beach just a little south of, of where we were. I cried and I walked and I drank orange juice. And I cried and I walked and I drank orange juice. And somebody gave me a copy of Living Sober. I read Living Sober. I cried. I drank orange juice and I walked. I did not know that I was detoxing at that time. I did not know that, that that's what that was. I thought I was just losing my mind. But it worked. It worked for me. Probably at the end of a couple of weeks, I had stopped crying and started sweating. So I was sweating, walking, drinking orange juice. And the orange juice stand, Indian River Fruit, had a stand on, on the highway on the way to the beach, and there was a wooden Indian out in front. And it was about three months before I knew that that wasn't a real Indian. <laughs> I asked my husband, I said, what's that guy sitting out here all the time for? It's so hot. <laughs> but I was a very sick person. All of us that find our way into these rooms are not healthy. We're not well people. I'm powerless over alcohol, and I can't manage my own life, whether I'm drunk or sober. I can't, period. No human power could have relieved my alcoholism, and that includes doctors, ministers, priests, lawyers, children, husbands, mothers. No human power could have relieved my alcoholism. And I came to you, and I found God. And that's the greatest gift 
That's the greatest gift that I've received from Alcoholics Anonymous. He is a power greater than myself, and I prefer to call him God because it just, it just makes it easier for me. I like to keep it simple. God could and would if he were sought. And I said it this morning. You know, I was looking out my beautiful window upstairs. What a gorgeous place this is. Looking out over that golf course and the geese were out feeding on the... I guess they're geese. I know they're not seagulls. Uh, <laughs> they had really long necks, so I guess they must be geese. They were out feeding on the golf course and uh, it was such a beautiful sight. You know, the mist was lifting and, and I thought to myself, you know, I could have missed all this. Years ago, years ago, I was, I was so close to, to just missing this whole thing, missing the whole experience. And I looked out and I looked at that scene and I said, God could and would if he were sought. And that's the way I start my day. I ask him to, to direct my path. Um, may my words be acceptable in his sight. I have a lot of little simple catchy things like that that I like to use that calm me down. I'm no longer on the mad rush to nowhere because I have some faith in my life and I have some peace today. When my husband passed away, I experienced a peace that passes all understanding because he passed into a peaceful place. It was so evident. It was so evident. And aside from my grief and aside from my moments when I want to stay in bed, I'm sure that none of you ever wanted to do that when you were feeling sorry for yourself. You know, I think I'll just stay in bed today. Put my head under the pillow. Or maybe I'll put my head in a plastic bag, take some deep breaths. My children made it very clear to me that that was not in the cards for me. My sponsor made it clear to me. My sponsees. You know, they started in early on, before the end was in sight even, bringing food to the house, coming to the house, sitting around, visiting, being there for us. It was fabulous. Where else, where else in this world could I have possibly had that circle of friends around me? After the memorial service, and by the way, the, uh, the minister told me that they hadn't had that many people in that church even on an Easter. <laughs> it's quite a few people. They came all back to the house, and uh, people had brought all kinds of food and stuff, and there were, uh, my son came up to me, the 14-year-old uh, who used to dive for the groceries is now a commander in the Navy. He uh, had taken charge, you know how they do. <laughs> He's 40 years old now, and he can take charge. He said, Mom, are you going to tell me that all these beautiful women <laughs> that are walking around this house today are all part of that fellowship that you belong to? And I said, well, maybe not all of them, but I mean, you know, there's some neighbors wandering around here and a few other friends, but for the most part, they were all members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, well, I'm telling you what, I've never seen anything like it. He says, there are really some beautiful women. And when I get back to Omaha, I am going to start a 12-step program. <laughs> So my life in AA started, and the first thing that I did uh, after three months, they asked me if I'd be the cookie chairman for my group, and uh, I said no. My sponsor said, yes, she will. She's, <laughs> she's saying no, but she means yes. 
I said, I can't be the chairman of the cookies because I don't go to the grocery store well. I don't do well there. I lose things. I forget, and I leave. But that group gave me the money and the list with the list of the, gro- uh, the cookies on it and said, the store is right over down the street here. You go and buy five kinds of cookies, and you come back next week. And you know what? What a beginning. What a beginning in service. To have to make those decisions. You know, the chocolate-covered grams. I mean, there were people there that ate their dinner on Monday night. And they, that's what they ate, chocolate-covered grams. And I would come in with the cookies, and they would just all scream and run. And, and I thought it was because of me. <laughs> and then I found out it was because of the cookies. And I had replaced uh, a gal that, that was lovingly referred to as Crazy Marilyn. Uh, this cookie job was sort of a, a newcomer's job in the group. And Crazy Marilyn uh, knitted those granny squares. I don't know if any of you remember granny squares, but, you know, you make these afghans out of them. And uh, she, she just did them by the zillions in the meetings. Everywhere you saw her, she was doing one. And um, she had been the cookie person for a while. And... Um, I, I don't know for what reason uh, they replaced her. Maybe it was because she bought the cookies uh, six months at a time uh, and carried them in the trunk of her car. <laughs> but I got very, very good. I got very, very good at cookies. And you know how we do. Those of us in Alcoholics Anonymous, we get a little bit of a job. And there's some of you sitting in this room. I know it right now. I can tell from looking at your face. You've gotten really good at what you do. And then somebody comes along, and it's their turn to do it. And so that's what happened to me. My sponsor said, it's time for you to step aside, and this girl is going to do the cookies. Well, I was horrified. I mean, no one, no one could possibly do those cookies the way I did. But they, they allowed me to become the cake person. Um, the cake person has a huge responsibility. You have to call ahead, order the cake, the colors of the frosting, and pick up the cake, bring it to the meeting. And uh, I once again got elevated to a position that was just beyond belief. I mean, uh, one night I came in the room with the cake. Uh, We have, I don't know if you all have public grocery stores here or not, probably not. But anyway, maybe you do, okay. Well, they have great bakeries. And I had this big bakery box in my, in my hands. And uh, as I came in the door, I stumbled and I dropped the box on the floor. Well, Publix Cakes, it stayed in the box. That's the, that's the beautiful part. But those cakes have a tendency to kind of, because they're mostly air, right? So it kind of relaxed in the box. <laughs> and... Uh, Nobody asked me why I dropped the cake. I didn't have to say I don't know. <laughs> they picked the cake up, put it on the table. We got the little plastic forks, and we ate the cake out of the box. And that's love in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is where it is, unconditional love. Well, things got more serious after that because um, I made the mistake at a business meeting of asking what a GSR was. And if you're new here, you don't want to ask a lot of questions because if you start asking too many questions, you get stuck with with interesting jobs. Um, I asked what the GSR was, and so they said, "Well, you can be it." And I said, "What?" And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to Fort Pierce. That's a rotten place. I'm not going up there to those meetings. I'm not going to those district meetings. Fort Pierce is a bad town. A lot of cowboys and bad apples up there. She says, you'll fit right in. (laughs) One day I was looking out the window at the meeting. You don't ever want to do that either. You, You want to pay attention or act like you're paying attention in the business meeting. I, I was drifting around, and I was looking out the window, 
And I was a DCM. <laughs> Just like that. Boom. And things went on from there. Participation in service has saved my life more than one time. Absolutely saved my life. And if you're wondering why your life is so miserable and you're so unhappy, you know, you might try just walking up to somebody in your group and saying, can I bring some cookies next week? They'll probably lose consciousness. <laughs> but you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed what happens. When I had been sober five years, I, I was the district chairman in District 6 in South Florida. I did not have a clue what I was doing but I acted as if I knew what I was doing. I became very depressed. Um, a depression set over me at the fifth year that was beyond describing. But I didn't tell anybody. Nobody really knew. A few people began to suspect. Here, here's the district chairman hovering in her closet with the light off, crying on the floor of the closet. I mean, I really needed to be hospitalized. But you know what they did? They came to my house and said, get in the car. Have any of you ever heard that expression? <laughs> it's an old, old expression in Alcoholics Anonymous. Get in the car. And I said, I don't want to get in the car. I, I'm not feeling well. He said, get in the car. Where are we going? Well, we're going to go to Fort Pierce. No, I'm not going to Fort Pierce. Well, I've got to go pick up my vacuum cleaner. Well, you get in the car. We're going. And so then they popped an AA tape into the car, and away we went. And they did that day after day after day. Two or three women would come to the house. That's love in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to pull out of that because I knew that I hadn't worked the steps. And if you're sitting here and you're miserable, you might want to ask yourself, have I worked the steps? Have I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to the best of my ability? Have I followed the directions that are laid out in our big book to the best of my ability? And it became really, really clear to me that I had been phonying my way through all this stuff on steps one, and maybe 12. Sure, I can admit I'm powerless over alcohol. So now I'm going to rush out and help others. I'm going to rush out and spread the disease. <laughs> and I got really, really scared. I got very, very scared. And I got a new sponsor at that point. I got a new sponsor. I bought a new book that hadn't been notated with all my wonderful yellow scribblings. And I started over again. And you can start over again. Anytime you want to start over, you can start over and you don't have to pick up a drink. You can just start again. And that's what I did at the fifth year. I got serious about the recovery program. At the tenth year, I got serious about the traditions. And I began to incorporate the traditions into my personal life. What a, what a wonderful exercise that is. You won't believe it. It's, it's incredible. And, at, you know, at 15 years or whatever, I began going around giving tradition talks to people that didn't want to hear about the traditions. Most people do not want to hear about the traditions. They want to talk about anger and resentment. I mean, please, let's talk about anger and resentment. Or, let, oh, how about let's talk about relationships. There's a good topic. Relationships can be summed up in one sentence. See if I can get this right. If you don't like what you're getting, you have to stop doing what you're doing. Now, that'll take a little while to sink in, but in any event. I found out that... Uh, our common welfare does come first. Personal recovery does depend on AA unity. Without our groups and without our meetings, I am a sunk, sunk, sunk person. I found out that the, our common welfare comes first at our house. There's more than one person living there. 
Right now I have dogs living there with me. And when they look at me, I have to think about their common welfare. You know, is it time for them to eat? Is it time for them to go for a walk or whatever? But my personal recovery, and isn't it interesting that he said personal? My personal recovery depends upon AA unity. So we have to stick together. We don't have a choice. And if you've been sober for a while and you've gone to any business meetings, you've probably found out that we really do need an ultimate authority. <laughs> we have but one ultimate authority. It's not some bleeding deacon sitting over against the wall. Uh, it's not the guy that has had his hands on the purse, purse strings for the last 20 years. The ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself where in our group conscience. What is the group conscience? It's whoever's there that night. There's 15 people there, fine. There's five people there, fine. What is our requirement for membership? I worked my whole life to, to get to be a member here. It took me forever to develop the requirement for membership. The desire to stop drinking. It doesn't say the desire not to drink. It says the desire to stop drinking. And I mean, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to, to see that stopping drinking is different from not drinking. Stopping drinking kind of indicates that you might have been a drinker at some point in your life. My uh, personal recovery depends upon you. My ultimate authority is a loving God. And I have a requirement for membership not only here, but at my house. Because if I pick up a drink, I'm not going to be a member of that household anymore. That's all I would need to do to get excluded from that family, is to pick up a drink. So can I be autonomous without bossing you around? Can my group be autonomous without interfering with other groups? We try, we do, we try that. Autonomy is a great big, I think Bill called it a 50 cent word. But it's okay for me to be autonomous, as long as I don't affect you. On the street that I live, I can be autonomous in my house and in my yard, as long as I'm not disturbing my neighbors. That's what this is all about. In your office, how many of you work, well, never mind. A lot of you work in an office. A lot of you have a business. Those of you that are self-employed are probably thinking, well, uh, you know, I'm self-employed. I, I really don't need this. Well, let me tell you what. If you're self-employed, I might suggest that you write a job description for yourself. And see if you can put down on paper what it is that you're supposed to be doing every day. It's a very interesting exercise. So Tradition 5 says, now what is our primary purpose? What is our primary purpose? Is our primary purpose to drink coffee and eat cookies? Well, that's kind of fun, and it is fun. Is it to come to conferences like this? Yes, it is. It's a big part of our primary purpose. It's a big part of my purpose. I get to go around a lot these days. It's wonderful. But that's not my primary purpose here. My primary purpose is to try to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And sometimes that's a brand new person. We had a fellow here last night, I think he had seven days or something. I cannot imagine myself getting my flip-flops on the right feet in seven days to go to any kind of an event. I was very impressed by that. My uh, primary purpose is to carry the message, not the disease not only uh, in the meetings, but at home and everywhere else. In the office, at the store. Don't you hate it when they say we may be the only copy of the big book that somebody's ever going to see? And you think about this just before you want to punch somebody. And it goes on like that. You can take your own, you can take your own uh, tradition book and look at it and say, how does this apply to me? 
I believe that steps six and seven are the heart of the AA program. It's been said by two or three speakers this weekend already. And that's what had happened to me basically at the fifth year. I had paid no attention to what my glaring character defects were. Absolutely no attention whatsoever. And until I found out what they were and asked God to help me, I, 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 there was no way I could move forward. Do they still come back? Yes. The step doesn't say they're uh, annihilated forever. It says they're removed, which means they can roll back into the path from time to time. Uh-oh, here comes one. Here comes jealousy. Here comes suspicion. Here comes envy. Here comes, God forbid, lust. Uh, you know, and on and on. But I have a way today of dealing with that stuff. I don't have to be a professional. AA ought never be professional. We ought never be organized. I mean, this weekend is a perfect example of that, right? You guys didn't spend a lot of time knocking your heads out, knocking yourself crazy over getting every little organizational detail, and it was wonderful. I'm serious. I mean, there are those that say, oh, these people really ought to get their act together. You know, they really don't want blah, blah, blah. Well, I say, hey, we're doing good. We're doing good. We're here, and we're doing good. I, I'm glad I don't have to be a professional. I'm glad I can say to these girls that call me up, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a financial advisor, and, and I'm not a loan officer at the bank. And I don't run a motel. Sorry. I don't have to be a professional. Am I anonymous? I try to be. Do I believe that anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all of our traditions? Yes, I do. Why? Because it's the core of humility. If I tell you everything there is to know about me the first day I meet you, I've spoiled my chances at being anonymous. Anonymity is a far-reaching concept. It has a lot more to do with a lot of things other than whether I'm in this program or not, or whether I'm not drinking or not. I believe that the anonymity principles are the crowning jewels of Alcoholics Anonymous. At home, I don't, need, I don't have to tell those people how much I know. I don't have to tell my children how much I know about everything. I don't have to tell them about this five-star education that I got, which afforded me very little, I might add. It did not contribute to my recovery from alcoholism. Not one bit. So those are some things to think about. Participation in service. Taking a look at the traditions from maybe a different angle. Going back to your home group. Shaking them up a little bit. We should be self-supporting through our own contributions. Now there's a big one. I had to learn how to be self-supporting at home emotionally. Self-supporting has a lot to do with things other than money. Can I be self-supporting emotionally? I better be. If I'm depending upon you to hold me up emotionally, I'm really in trouble. I learn how to be self-supporting through my own contributions. So I'm going to go home now this afternoon, and it'll be different because this is the first time I've been away, and I'll go home, and I'll see my dogs and my sponsee who's taking care of my house and my dogs. And I'll be grateful because this girl came to me with an eighth grade education and she said, I want to be better. I want to be a better person. She says, I want to be sober. So she got sober and then she wanted to be better. So she got her high school diploma and she wanted to do something better. She just graduated with honors from FAU with a degree in communications. 
straight four points. That's what service in Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, is helping somebody, taking them from where they are, allowing them to express what they would really like to be, do, think, or feel, and then helping them along the way with the understanding that you don't have to drink again, no matter what. So, if you can't live and you can't die, when you get home, make coffee. Thank you. <laughs>